Florida goes blue, it's over. My, our home state, Florida. All eyes on Florida for the final countdown. We're going to go into election day having already tabulated everything that we received for Monday. Souls to the polls. Record-breaking early voting enters its last day. Mail has been stacked up uh, for almost a week. Tracking the ballots and potential problems. If we put each other first instead of our politics, we can fix them. My parents' example taught me the values of this great nation. The race for a critical state Senate seat gets nasty. The push to raise the minimum wage. Who pays in the end? It's all this week and all on This Week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the dash to the finish and the final push to get out the vote. A big part of that today is souls to the polls, a tradition for black voters to go collectively to vote after church on the final Sunday before election day. COVID could cut into that big in-person turnout today, although early voting over the last couple of weeks has shattered records. We are live at the last day of early voting this Sunday morning. Madeline Wright joins us from Fort Lauderdale. Good morning, Madeline. Good morning, Madeline. Good morning, Glenna and Michael. This is one of eight Souls to the Polls events happening in Miami-Dade and Broward County today. The goal is to get the black vote out because organizers want to turn Florida blue for Biden. Now, if you take a look over here, you can see that there are a lot of folks here ready for this event to start at noon underneath these white tents where they are grilling some food, playing music, trying to keep people's spirits up. It is an event that's hosted by several labor union members and organizations that teamed up with churches to get black people to head straight to the polls after getting out of church. There are food trucks here. There are people campaigning for Biden and other candidates. There are also, there's even a, a mascot happening who's dancing right now. Now this is the last day of early voting. So there's a big push to secure those crucial votes. And Florida is a must win state for both presidential candidates. Last week, there was a Quinnipiac poll that put Biden up by three points in the Sunshine State, but it's a virtual dead heat given the margin of error. Each campaign is pulling out all the stops, bringing out Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Ivanka Trump, and Donald Trump, all of whom visited Florida recently. In fact, Trump is visiting Miami Oak Palaka Executive Airport tonight, and Barack Obama is expected to be here tomorrow. Today is the last day to turn in your mail-in ballots at any polling location. After that, only specific locations will be accepting those mail-in ballots. For a list of those places, you can find it on our website, local10.com. Live in Fort Lauderdale, Natalie Wright, Local 10 News. And you can find all kinds of election information on local10.com, that's for sure. These critical next few days will be filled with polling and messaging and number crunching and for the candidates crisscrossing swing states. Obviously, Florida plays an outsized role in the outcome of this election. And now we want to get some perspective on where it is trending from two of South Florida's most politically engaged and knowledgeable players. Ed Pozzuoli and Chris Smith, both attorneys in Fort Lauderdale on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Ed is former chair of the Broward Republican Party and is an influencer in GOP circles. 
uh, Chris Smith, a Democrat, a former state senator, and both longtime friends of This Week in South Florida. It is so good to see you both. Hey, Thanks for being Good morning, here. gentlemen. Great uh, to see you. Thank you for morning, being with morning. us. Good morning. Uh, <laughs> Chris Smith, let me begin with you. We just had this report from the African American Research Library, Fort Lauderdale. Clearly, a huge part of whatever happens in the state is polls to the souls. What do you think is going to happen? Because in Miami Day, the last figure we saw was that black voters are lagging. 48% of registered voters had voted in Miami Day. Don't know what it is in Broward, but. You know, you need to get more people out here. More black voters need to get out. Are they going to do it? Yes, I think they'll make it out. I'm about actually a mile from the African-American Research Library right now. And just the name of it, Souls to the Polls, shows the concern that we have. Those souls were normally coming from the church. So people would go to church to the 8 o'clock service, 9 o'clock service, leave the church and go straight to the polls. Well, because of COVID, a good 75 to 85 percent of our churches aren't meeting. And so that's made it kind of hard to get those people to leave church, follow their pastors down to the polls. But you see a lot of organizations and a lot of elected officials, Senator Thurston and myself and Representative DuBose and Commissioner McKenzie have been pushing people in the Fort Lauderdale area to get to these polls. Um, but it, it's tougher because of COVID and because we don't have those churches right now to push people to the polls. But I think you'll see it pick up today, especially with the good weather in Fort Lauderdale. You know, Ed, let's talk about COVID for a moment. Because of the pandemic, the vote by mail has exploded with so much attention on that. But in the last two weeks of early voting, we've been out all over South Florida. There have been lines at all the early voting sites. People are social distancing, wearing their mask. Those numbers show in-person voting is actually very popular. Well, Glenn, it just goes to show you life goes on even under COVID, and that is exactly big difference between President Trump, who's saying, let's keep America open, let's keep your business open, let's keep your schools open, versus Joe Biden, who wants to go back and shut it down again. And let's face it, as souls go to the polls, they need to remember that it's their child whose school was was, wasn't open. And who gets hurt by that? It is those children who get hurt most by the fact that the community school, their school wasn't open in time, Glenna, and their businesses were closed. And so maybe they just ought to vote for President Trump. I'll, I'll have one last point on this. As you're looking at the voting totals in Florida, we are exactly where we were four years ago. Republicans were slightly behind, but there was a large number of Republicans of four by four voters, super voters, still waiting for election day, like most Republican voters do. And that's the same this year as it was four years ago. Uh, Ed, let me ask you uh, about the closing arguments the candidates are making. We have seen the candidates repeatedly here in South Florida and in the state. Uh, uh, President Trump showing remarkable stamina is going to do this 1130 rally this evening after going to four other states around the country. Uh, his, his closing argument, though, it seems to me, is kind of muddled. I mean, it really is strongest argument is the economy is coming back. GDP in the last quarter was up 7%, but he, he doesn't seem to talk about that very much. 
GDP actually was up 33% from the quarter before, uh, Michael, and so let's understand that. And Florida, frankly, under the leadership of the governor DeSantis, hasn't been as impacted as some other states. But our businesses need to stay open. Our schools need to remain open. You cannot make up time for students. Now, I do think there's one thing, one big difference, enthusiasm gap between supporters of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. You cannot stay in your basement and become president. And so in the end, the president is a great closer with great energy. And that goes to show how he's done so much more in 47 months than Joe Biden has done in 47 years, Michael. Okay, just a, just a little fact check the past couple of weeks. Joe Biden has been really far out of the basement and all over the country, <laughs> including South yeah. Florida. Well, but, I, I guess, did, he see, did he see a shadow, Glenna? <laughs> let, let me just, well, Chris, let, let, me, let me ask you this, because I want to pick up on the enthusiasm factor, because a lot of people are talking about that. The, the Joe Biden events that we've been to in South Florida, they're drive-ins, they are invitation only. This is not a mass rally, such a contrast yeah. with a president who draws thousands and sometimes tens of thousands in big public events. No doubt they have been factually super spreaders, some of those rallies. Yeah. Um, and, and so I just want to highlight that Joe Biden's, um, his whole his whole plan of action is also a campaign message about COVID safety. And that's Definitely. a big contrast to the president. But but that enthusiasm factor is something now that the president's campaign is really highlighting. So how do you how do you get past that, Chris? I think we're doing a lot of, of other events and that just shows you that Joe Biden cares about his actual voters, unlike the president who wants to subject his voters to all of this COVID. But what we're doing, we're doing a lot of smaller events. We've had three events here yesterday in Fort Lauderdale in which we've had other people come around and we're doing a lot of stuff in our cars and social distancing. But yeah, Ed has a point. That's the difference, was Joe Biden wants to be the president for all living people where the president doesn't care and he wants to put people together in these big COVID camps and, and just subject them to that. I think it's great that Joe Biden is being the adult. And I think in the community, you know, we've suffered a little bit on enthusiasm, but every time the president speaks, he reminds us of the enthusiasm that we've waited not four hours to vote, but four years to vote. Not four hours in the line, but four years to go after this and to make sure we bring America back to normalcy. So we're, we're having a lot of smaller events instead of just one event with the president at Opelika tonight. There's about 100 events you know, throughout South Florida today with many different groups. And so there's still, there's still a lot of events going on instead of everybody at one with the Democrats. You're seeing multiple events and multiple enthusiasm in South Florida. Yeah, well, I have to say here for the record as the co-moderator, I think we're hearing <laughs> hyperbole from both of you guys. I mean, that's all right. You, you are partisans. Um, uh, Chris Smith, this week uh, yes. when uh, Barack Obama was, was in yes. on Sistrunk Boulevard earlier at another uh, location, I've got to say, I mean, he remains probably the best person on this campaign. He's a great campaigner. Uh, and there's real excitement when he shows up. I don't see that same excitement for Joe Biden. Why not? Well, actually, it was Joe Biden was on Sistrong two days ago across the street from where I am right now. And there was excitement. But the, the thing is, with the Joe Biden um, visit on, on Sistrong, it was very hush-hush. They did not want the big crowds and the massive crowds. But once those cars started coming down Sistrong Boulevards, and once they saw those police cars coming and they saw it was Biden, 
you know, there had to be a big um, crowd, a big um, police presence outside to keep the crowds from yeah. there. So what you're seeing, what you're seeing is not the lack of enthusiasm of people coming, is that they're keeping the people back so that we're not having these big clumps in this COVID crisis. So there was enthusiasm when Joe Biden came. I was there and um, we, we yeah. were there and saw him. But outside, what you didn't see from the cameras were tons of people on Sistrunk Boulevard looking to get in there to see Joe Biden. But again, he was being responsible and not having all these people come yeah. together as one big crowd. All right, Michael, so uh, we, Ed, we uh, let's take a quick break because we want to talk about the president coming in tonight at Opalaka Airport. So sit tight. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Okay. We are back with Chris Smith and Ed Pozzuoli looking at South Florida through the election lens on this dash to the finish. Ed, tonight, uh, President Trump's coming into Opelika Airport for a rally, a late night rally, late night, AKA after Miami Dade's curfew rally. So, does this put the mayor, Carlos Jimenez, in kind of a, an odd position? Do you enforce the curfew that's actually now being looked at in the courts? Or do you give special dispensation to the president you support? How, how do you see that going? Well, I think that, look, we're talking about political speech. I think it should be protected. The idea of a curfew is, is just craziness anyway when it comes to that. You didn't see curfew really uh, too much enforced before when people were protesting. I want to be clear. This is the president of the United States coming in Opelika in a secure event. And I do think it's important on, on this front. You, by the way, Carlos Menes is likely to be the next congressman. I, I predict that he will win a, a close one come Tuesday. It's very interesting, though, that you have strong uh, Latin support coming out of Dade County, and that's made the difference in, in the state, across the state. This idea that uh, Latins, Hispanics are concerned with where Joe Biden would take the country around with bringing in socialists, Wait, how do we get Harris. there from a curfew question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but because in, in, the, in the end, I think the message has to be heard that this is why people are moving toward President Trump. He's getting a lot more Latin support, strong, overwhelming Latin support this time around than even four years ago. You're seeing that in yeah. some of the numbers coming out of Dade County. He wow. has, yeah, we, I, I would certainly say, I think Mr. Trump has run a much stronger campaign among Hispanic voters than he did four years ago. Chris Smith, let me ask you, the, the Biden campaign, uh, Vice President Biden has really made this mainly a referendum on the handling by President Trump of the coronavirus of the pandemic. And, you know, the president at all of these rallies today, tonight, yesterday, over the last couple of weeks, keeps saying that we have, you know, turned the corner on COVID. COVID, 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 COVID. We've turned the corner on COVID. When all the facts and science seem to indicate, we indeed have not. I mean, just the other day, there were 98,000 new cases of uh, coronavirus uh, in the United States, a record. So where does this stand? I mean, how does how does Mr. Biden, you know, counter that argument? Well, of course, the president's going to say that COVID is over because that has been the referendum of this. His mishandling the COVID crisis. He keeps referring to some uh, blockage back in, in, in March as saving two million people. But just yesterday here in Broward County, I attended two different funerals of people that died of COVID. So he can say at his rallies and keep the bullhorn going, but Floridians and people in Broward and Dade and South Florida 
are going to these funerals. They're seeing people still dying of COVID. And we're seeing through science that it's rising, that it's coming up again. So I think that's the, the Biden message is just look what's happening. Not what you're hearing from these rallies, not what you're hearing from the deniers. Look in your own communities. Look at the people that you see are suffering and are still dying from COVID and let's be responsible adults. Yeah. The message is clear. Look at what's happening every day. Okay, so I, we're I, right now we're looking at video of Vice President Biden with a mask. Do we have that video of the president that we just had? Because that's uh, those are live pictures that we're just seeing right now. That's President Trump live at a rally in Michigan, Michigan. Mm -hmm. and uh, you can you can see he's not wearing a mask. There is a crowd, and we are used to seeing this kind of thing. Ed, the the incredible schedules that both these men are keeping in the next few days. Uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, is, these are obviously the swing places. Is this because it's a enthusiastic get out the vote or is this a concern? These places are concerning to them or somewhere in between? This is a get out the vote, Glenn, I'd answer that question. But let me, let me go back to COVID really quick. The number of cases has gone up, but the number of a percentage of deaths have gone way down. And don't get me wrong, I feel for anybody who is impacted by COVID, whether they were sick or whether they died, that's not the issue now. The issue is, has the government done what it can do? If you look around, Europe was completely shut down and they're still going through another wave, a surge. So are we, what government policy is gonna be impacted? So what we've done, really simple, is he did stop travel from China, he did stop travel from Europe early on. That was something Joe Biden was against. It is easy for someone to sit in the basement of his house and throw rocks at the policy, but have no real answer. And then the second part is the, the idea around uh, the way they're treating uh, COVID has impacted death rates and brought them way, way down. Let's not mis misinterpret. The cases may have gone up, but the death percentage has gone all way right, down. Ed, you point, and I both know that people get sick all the time, and it's very sad. But Ed, the Ed, government is doing all it can point, do. Point taken, point well made. Uh, let's talk, if we can, while we still have a, a minute or so left, about the fact that uh, for all the terrible, shameful elections that have been held in Florida, this one, at least in South Florida, is going remarkably well. The votes have, all the votes that have been uh, uh, made have been counted uh, as of this morning in Miami-Dade and Broward. I mean, more power, kudos to the supervisors of election, Christina White, Miami-Dade, and Pete uh, uh, Bontanacci, uh uh, in Broward. I mean, they've done well. So, so well, Michael, this is kudos to our team, and I think Chris would agree on this part of it, that Dade Brown and Palm Beach are enjoying a certain test run that we've had over the years, and let's face it, testing by the metal. In this case, I do think that they're on top of it, the three supervisors, uh, the Miami-Dade Elections Office, Pete Antonacci and Wendy Link in Palm Beach, they have been on top of it. And votes that came in by mail that were unsigned had been tracked down by their staffs to have a voter try to cure. I think all those things are important. And let's also because, give kudos to the election yeah, supervisor in Monroe County. They've been doing very well, right. too. Chris? But, but, Michael, the concern is the post office. I mean, we're talking about supervisor elections, but as we saw as reporting on your network, yeah. there's some concerns in the post offices that their ballots are still there. I saw Keona McGee down in Miami at the post office talking about ballots and mail-in ballots that are sitting in post offices. So supervisor elections have been doing a good job, but we still must go and look at those post offices and make sure that ballots that are sitting in these buckets and post offices are counted.
And actually, the Miami-Dade State Attorney has called for an audit of all the distribution centers, so we'll be following that this week. Thank you so much, Ed Pizzoli, Chris Smith. Always great to have you aboard. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, up next, the fight to raise uh, the income, hourly income, for Florida's lowest earners. It's called Amendment 2 on your ballot, and you will hear the debate. First up, the man who got that on the ballot. Among the questions on the ballot on Tuesday, and already for those of you who have voted already, is a potential hike in the hourly wage for Florida's lowest wage earners. Amendment 2 of the 6 on your ballot proposes raising Florida's minimum wage to an eventual $15 an hour. Opponents say the costs and the unintended consequences would be just too much, and you're going to hear that argument. But first, the support for it from the Central Florida attorney who led the effort to get the minimum wage raise on the ballot, John Morgan, right there with us via Skype from near Daytona Beach. John, good to see you, and John, thank you for you? being with us. How are you? Well, we're doing very well. We are very glad to see you again. Been a while since you've been on our program. First of all, tell us why should the hourly wage be raised over the course of about five years to $15 an hour? Why do you support it? Because the minimum wage as it now exists is not a living wage. People are working like crazy, one, two, three jobs. And even after that, they head off to a food bank to beg for free food. That is that should not happen in, in United States of America. And so to your point, the food banks, especially now during COVID, lines have been so long and people are really struggling. But then so are the corporations and especially the small businesses who operate are struggling as well. And and we've heard from so many of them saying, listen, at this point in COVID, some especially the service industry that has been shut down just can't afford that and threaten to cut hours and cut jobs so that the the victims might be those very people that a minimum wage raise hike would help. And how do, how do you address that? Well, first of all, they're not going to cut any jobs. You think they're going to you think they're going to mop the floor? You think they're going to cook the food? You think they're going to wait on the tables? No, they're not going to cut any jobs because they're not going to do the hard work. They're not going to do the essential work. Remember, this doesn't take place until November of 2021, $10 an hour. It doesn't hit $15 an hour for six years. People who are trying to use the pandemic as a way to keep people down are despicable because it's like blaming 9-11. You know, well, we had 9-11, so we can't raise the minimum wage from eight fifty-six to $10 an hour for our most essential workers. We now know what an essential worker is and who they are and what they do. And they put their lives on the line every day for slave wages. It's outrageous. Yeah. Uh, John, you are the chairman, founder of this group, Florida for a Fair Wage. They have raised about $6.2 million. I've got a feeling uh, that most of that money is from you. So I guess we could say you have put your money where your mouth is. I mean, that is mostly John Morgan's money, isn't it? Uh, after taxes money, yeah. So yes, it is, but I believe this. I believe in this country when you have had the good luck to have good luck and good, good fortune, 
you are required, you're mandated to share that fortune, to share that good luck with the people who didn't have the same luck. So that's why I did it. So the goal, the really well-intentioned goal, obviously, is to eventually eradicate extreme inequality that we see in almost every city in this state and across the country. Does $15 an hour do that? Not really. I mean, in $10 an hour, it definitely doesn't. But I had to put on there what I could get to at least advance the ball. Uh, you know, what what people would like is to have no minimum wage. I mean, that's how we pay our migrant workers. They're paid uh, illegally and almost unlawfully uh, because people like to have almost free labor. So it's the best I can do to get. Now, remember, we have to pass this with 60% of the vote. So there's a lot that I would have wanted to do more, but you still got to face political reality. Yeah. John, I, I, at the risk of asking you to repeat yourself in just a minute, we're going to spoke to speak to a gentleman here in Miami-Dade who owns a, a group of very good restaurants. And he is going to say, if I have to pay a minimum wage uh, of $10 an hour, eventually $15, i am going to lay off busboys, dishwashers, line cooks. I'm going to have all kinds of people I can't afford. What, what is your response to that? If he says that, he's a liar. I own restaurants. I own hotels. I own attractions. I'm not going to bust tables. I'm not going to wash dishes. I'm not going to wait on tables. I'm not going to make beds. I'm not going to mow grass, and neither is he. He just wants free or almost free labor. He is a liar. Can I, can I just uh, mitigate that for just a minute with a number? 77% um, increase in payroll in the service industry is the projection. And, and John, the service industry right now is the, probably the industry struggling most. Um, so 77% increase in payroll is a, is a hard number, and I think we could all agree it's a, it's a pretty big number. But you understand that's in year six. That's in year six. I'm 64 years old. By the time we get to year six, I'll either be 70 or dead. So. These people who want to say there's going to be this huge increase, you know, in the service industry, I'm in the restaurant business. I'm in the hotel business. The way it should work is that you build the tip into the check because a lot of waitresses, waiters, bartenders get stiffed after working their hands to the bone. And by the way, we do a lot of wage theft cases in Florida, I have 40 lawyers. You know who the number one offender of stealing the employees' wages, restaurants, overtime, to and from work, pooling tips. It, it is an industry that is ripe with wage theft as is. And you know why? Because the business is almost impossible. Some people should, should never go into the restaurant business yeah. because 80% go out of business in four years and 60% yeah, go a, out of business in it, one year. It's a, it's a very tough business. John Morgan, you have succeeded enormously in both all those businesses and uh, in your law firm, Morgan & Morgan. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you very much. Thanks. As we've been talking about, businesses among those that oppose Amendment 2, raising the minimum wage, and the counterpoint is next. Stay tuned.
The opposition to the Amendment 2 proposal to raise the minimum wage includes a variety of business groups and companies, large and small. And they say the costs are too high, especially as we've been talking about in this COVID-wrecked economy and could hurt the very people it's meant to help. Carlos Gazatua is here to explain that, South Florida restaurant owner and today representing the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association. Carlos, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me, Glenna. Carlos, we're glad to see you. All right, let's answer, let you answer the accusations that Mr. Morgan just made in that last segment where he says if you're going to say you're going to have to lay off your bussers and dishwashers and people uh, at restaurants across the state of Florida, that that's a lie. What, what, what is your response? Well, my response is that in spirit, we all want to increase wages, especially for those that are the low income workers, right? Because at the end of the day, what I think Mr. Morgan is indicating is that we want to increase purchasing power for those workers. Unfortunately, how this amendment was written and how it was done was incorrect. And it's actually going to hurt and have unintended consequences. So let's go through them. First, this was a constitutional battle. The last time we increased minimum wage and here in the state of Florida, we did it through the legislature. Right now, he put it through the Constitution. What he didn't discuss was this increase per wage not only increases the wage of just the average worker. Yeah. It wasn't very industry specific. Carlos, Carlos, if I can if I can interrupt you, I think I think all reasonable people would agree doing this by statute is better than doing it constitutionally. But you know, speak to the issue of how many employees who work in this huge industry in the state of Florida would lose their jobs if the pay is raised by a dollar an hour over the course of five or six years? Let's be specific. For example, if you go to, we did our study on the Florida uh, Restaurant Association website. The way this is written, it increases our cost over a million dollars for just six restaurants, okay? No small business can absorb that cost without doing what we saw in Seattle, what we saw in San Francisco. Remember, this is not a, an opinion piece. This is actual facts, okay? It increases um, technology. It increases prices because the businesses obviously can't float that. It's cut costs and cut benefits. Why? Because no one, not one politician, has come up with a plan to resolve the living wage issue. We even have politicians that understand this, that are a Democrat like Andrew Yang understands this. The $15 wage, he said, would hurt all small businesses because everyone has a different economic model. To really resolve this issue, to really resolve this issue takes industry-specific focus. Miami is different than Ocala, different than Jacksonville, okay? Having a one-size-fit policy has not worked, and it's going to have unintended consequences, and we're already seeing it throughout the state. Now, we talk about ill-timing during this pandemic. I mean, right now, you think, oh, biz, biz, big businesses can afford this. Really? What happened yesterday, Michael? Disney just announced 11,000 people will be fired by the end of December. This is Disney who has more vertical channels than most big businesses, right? So, so Carlo, Carlos, I, pardon me for interrupting. We're just on a time schedule and I wanna be able to get you, um, get you to be able to give as much information as possible. But, but to your point, um, the legislature is sort of the body that's supposed to do this statutorily, but have not, which is why John Morgan worked so hard to put mm -hmm. this to the people. So there are, factually speaking, people making minimum wage who cannot afford 
to buy groceries and to put their lights on at the same time. I, I'm not certain, we don't know what you pay your workers, but we all can acknowledge that minimum wage is not a livable wage in Miami, to your point. So what is the answer then, right now, in COVID, to help the people we live among make a minimum or make a wage that they can yeah. live on and that their families can live on? Well, I, I think first is getting data, right? Don't make a policy decision when you don't have data. No, he doesn't know what the starting wage is here in Miami. He doesn't know, I and mean, neither do I. Because you know why? There's no transparency wages here in our state. I don't know what my competitor charges for a starting wage. If you want to talk about market and capitalism, when Target increases their wages, guess what happens? Walmart does. Same economic model, just like that, increases wages, right? So the first step is get data before making a decision. That's what any business owner, anyone who has understands is get the data first and then create transparency. When you go to Amazon, you compare products. You understand what they cost or reviews. So that's step one. Next step is how do we talk about focusing and being strategic to help those who make less? So there's an earned income tax credit. Right now, that lifts 9 million people out of poverty every year. Did you know that the state of Florida, one out of five recipients can make $6,000 more a year by just applying and one in five don't? So if we create programs that focus on low-income workers, because at the end of the day, we don't want to increase purchasing prices. We have more seniors in the state of Florida than any other state. The goal is increase purchasing power for the low-end income workers, but don't increase prices for those like seniors who have less discretionary income. Figure out a solution by being industry specific. Go to the legislature, create alliances. That's what we should be doing now, not creating a law that we're going to say our market is constantly moving. We need not the constitutional ballot. We need a legislator that listens to industries on how to increase people's wages up. And unfortunately, that hasn't happened but it's gonna take industry leaders, as well as people like John Morgan to come in together and say, let's create a solution that works. But right now, for all the voters out there, Amendment 2 is a pass, okay? Because even if you're for this, and even if you like it, the way it was done was wrong. And unfortunately, that's why you need to get people that are industry specific to help those low wage workers without the least amount of impact for our consumers, all right. for our employees. I'm going to have to cut you off there. We appreciate your time this morning. May I say, I like eating at Sergio's, your restaurants. They're terrific. And uh, good luck. Uh, uh, we'll see what happens. 60% high bar to pass here on any of these amendments. Carlos Gazitua, thanks very much. Thanks, Carlos. Thank right. you. Thank, all right. The fight to win control of the Florida Senate has really reached a fever pitch, especially in District 39 in South Miami-Dade. That is one of the most contentious and expensive races, and one of the candidates is here next. We want to turn now to one of the nastiest and most expensive races for the state Senate anywhere in Florida, the one in District 39, which includes South Dade and all of the Keys. The district race has a much broader implication as well as Florida Democrats try to pick up seats and even the balance of power in the state legislature. Democrat Javier Fernandez is with us live. He is an attorney and current state representative as his opponent, Republican Ana Maria Rodriguez, who declined our invitation to be with us today. Good morning. Javier, good morning. Glad good to afternoon. see you. Glenda, good morning. Michael, good morning to you as well. Glad to be with you. We're, we're glad you are, and we regret that Ana Maria Rodriguez, whom I spoke to on Friday, said she was thinking about it, but she did not 
uh, agree to appear. Let's get a few things straight, Javier, if we can. Uh, in the ads that are being run against you, they say that you are basically a radical, a leftist. You want to defund police. Where are you on the political spectrum? If those are inaccurate accusations, go ahead and correct them. I, I think I'm a pretty moderate Democrat by any measure, including if you ask my Republican colleagues uh, in the House who had great success working with. Uh, on defund the police, it's uh, a joke of an attack, given that the Florida Fraternal Order of Police for Florida endorsed my candidacy. I don't think uh, cops would be endorsing candidates who are calling to defund the police. You know, it was interesting, just on, on Michael's point, I was reading a little bit of your background, and, and one of, uh, there's a list of people you admire, and some of your Republican colleagues are on there, which, uh, which kind of proves that point. But I wanted, I wanted to ask you, you know, COVID is sort of taking over every issue for every district right now and for the state as a whole, but what do you see the issues being in District 39, South Dade and the Keys, mm -hmm. sea, sea level rise is gonna be on that list, I'm gonna guess, but what, what is the pressing issue right now? You know, uh, in the short term on COVID, uh, we've, got to, we've got to figure out a way to get people to safely re-enter this economy. One of the things that we're not talking about, we're talking about unemployment reform, but one of the things we absolutely need is a paid benefit for people who are, do not have paid family leave of any type. So they can identify themselves as being exposed or being infected and step out of the economy and not have to choose between working or keeping a roof over their head uh, or paying for food. <clears throat> An absolutely essential <clears throat> of a reform effort we'll need to amount here with our unemployment system. And longer term, certainly transportation is a huge issue in the district. Uh, people in the western portions of the district, the north, central, west portion of the district have huge issues in transportation. Southern mobility is also an issue. Climate change, as you mentioned, top of the list, water quality. Everglades restoration, and, and one issue that I'm very passionate about and I've heard constantly about across the district is housing affordability. Look forward to working on all those issues when I ascend to the Senate in Tallahassee. Yeah, uh, another one of the issues that has been front and center in this race has been guns in classrooms. Uh, the legislature, after the tragedy at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, of course, passed a law that would allow, uh, with certain severe restrictions, a teacher or other person to have a gun in a school in a classroom. Uh, your ads say, "Why well, my mother was a teacher for many years. I wouldn't want her to have to take a gun to school. Your opponent voted for that bill. Take, take us through that, uh, that uh, debate. Yeah, it's a very important issue to highlight because I think it demonstrates my opponent's record for voting against our community's expressed wishes and interests. You know, I think over 70% of voters in Miami-Dade County are opposed to arming teachers. It was a gratuitous vote she took to support leadership. I think it shows her lack of independence, which we need in a state center representing this district. And on other issues that are critical to the district, on local control, uh, you know, short-term rentals, she's out of step with the needs of the district and consistently has voted against the express wishes of the voters in SD39. The uh, well, SD 39 for a long time has been represented by Annie Terry Flores, a moderate Republican, I guess we could call her, um, been with us a lot, term limited. So I wonder, uh, we know Annie Terry as first and foremost, education was sort of her thing. Uh, she is very pro-choice in education. Uh, I know you have a have a a record of you yourself going to private school, your kids go to private school, and yet you are 
I don't want to say anti-choice because that's kind of not what you are, but you are a much bigger proponent of putting money into public schools. Your opponent is very pro-choice. Frame, frame this argument, if you would, because right now Florida is a pro-choice education state. Yeah, look, uh, Glenn, I think it's a great question because, you know, when I vote, I vote in the best interest of my district and the constituents I serve. Ninety percent of our kids across Florida go to our public schools. Unfortunately, in Tallahassee, the last 20 years, we have been stripping that system of resources. And frankly, the worst offense, and I, and I respect people's uh, rights to choose to send their kids to parochial school. I do it myself at significant uh, expense and sacrifice. But we have, in terms of the voucher program here in Florida, is a system where we're writing these institutions a black check, a blank check, with no academic accountability standards whatsoever. The Republican sponsors in the House, when we discussed the bill on the floor, were hostile to any conversation around accountability. And while we require that of our public schools and even our charter schools, in the case of vouchers, we do not. And I simply cannot support a policy that has no accountability standards whatsoever. Yeah, a corollary to this whole argument, of course, is the most recent voucher system is paying tuition for children to attend religious schools, uh, and they have somehow have found a mechanism, the legislature, to make that work. Uh, do you, uh, you don't agree with that? Look, I think it's, uh, if you're a conservative, it should raise questions for you in terms of, you know, what requirements may come that may run counter to your doctrine in the future. You know, uh, there are things that you, they may, someone may find offensive that they're required to teach as part of the state's curriculum standards. And so when we blur those lines, other issues are raised. I don't think we've done a good enough job of discussing those issues. And I think it's also important to note one of the poor, uh, parts of the attack levied against me is I'm not supporting the option among the poorest children. Well, what's happening in Florida is that these resources now are being, we've raised the income standards to families earning $96,000 yeah. a year. That's not serving the poorest among us. We're, what we're doing is we're creating a program to allow more parents to have a cost that they're currently shouldering shouldered by the public. I think that raises important questions of equity that we should uh, spend a lot more time debating in Tallahassee. Speaking of equity, I'm not sure if you were able to hear the programs before. We had sort of a, a separate debate on the merits of Amendment 2, raising the minimum wage. Uh, are you are you for raising the minimum wage and, and for doing it as Amendment 2 is proposing? Look, I, I, I would prefer for us to do it in the legislature, uh, but it's something that we are absolutely unable to do because Republican leadership will not talk about either increasing the minimum wage or wage supports. Last year, I filed a bill uh, to create a state complement to the federal earned income tax credit. I heard Mr. Gazzatua mention that uh, in his presentation. This is a program that I've advocated for in terms of people claiming the benefit to lift people out of poverty. I thought we could do the same to kind of help workers along in Florida. That bill never got a hearing in any committee at any level. And so if we are unwilling to talk about wage supports, then I think the public has rightly taken this issue in its own hands and has pushed forward a conversation on the need to deal with wage inequality across our society. I'm, I'm pro Amendment 2, uh, but I think we could we could strike a better balance if we gave if the legislature actually did its job and took up these issues, which have been yeah. uh, down the road for too long. Javier Fernandez, candidate for state Senate, District 39, South Dade and the Keys. We appreciate your time this morning. And again, Ana Maria Rodriguez declined to be part of this uh, discussion. But thank you very much, Javi. Good to see you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. And stay tuned. We'll be right back.
On this Sunday, this last day of early voting, we want to thank you for being here with us. And remember, all you need to know about voting online 24-7 at local10.com. And you can cast your ballot today, early voting until 7 p.m.